Okay, good night, mate. Forty here. Do you belong to the trash riot? I just heard about this from Beardson and via PPP. Let's see what Tucker Carlson has to say. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, in the past 10 days, two separate teenage boys have committed horrifying massacres in public places. On May 14th, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron murdered 10 shoppers in a grocery store in Buffalo. And then yesterday, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos killed 19 small children and two teachers at an elementary school in Texas. Both Gendron and Ramos were very obviously mentally ill. The people around them knew that. Both killers had told other people they planned to commit a mass shooting, and then they did. So what can we learn from this? Well, the first most obvious answer is that the system in place didn't work. Gendron's teacher sent him to a mental hospital for evaluation. They knew he was a threat. They tried their best. He committed a massacre anyway. So we know for a fact that what we're doing isn't working. But we should also be honest enough to acknowledge that it's very hard to know what to do instead. Despite what you may have heard, the problem isn't that we don't care enough. There's not a person in this country who was not horrified by the sight of murdered children. It's the worst thing, and everybody thinks that. The problem is that the human mind is much more complex and harder to control than we like to admit. A person who is intent on committing violence is very hard to stop under any circumstances. An act of Congress isn't going to do it. Neither will gun control. There are more guns in this country than there are people. There always have been. However you feel about that fact, you can acknowledge that we will never get rid of all of those guns. The Constitution prohibits that, and you would set off a civil war if you tried to do it. So gun control, whether you find the slogans appealing or not, will not stop the next patron Gendron or Salvador Ramos, and every rational person knows it. The only way to stop these killings is to figure out why American society is producing so many violent young men. There is a reason they are acting this way. What is that reason? And it's not just mass shooters, by the way, the ones you see on television. It's gangbangers and carjackers and armed robbers Hello, everyone. and indiscriminate haters who push strangers in front of subway trains. We have a lot of people like that in this country all of a sudden, more than you like to think about. Why are they acting this way? That's the only question that matters. Of course, it's the only question our leaders hate to address because there's nothing in it for them. Last night, the president of the United States went on television just hours after 19 small children had been murdered. He didn't do that to uplift or unite the country, which was already united in its sorrow. Instead, he took the opportunity to once again harangue anyone who didn't vote for him. And he did it, as always, with a series of stale talking points left over from the 1980s. It was a shameful display. Here's part of it. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done. What in God's name do you need a solvent for except to kill someone? Deer aren't running through the forest with Kevlar vests on, for God's sake. It's just sick. And the gun manufacturers have spent two decades aggressively marking assault weapons, which make them the most and largest profit. For God's sake, we have to have the courage to stand up to the industry. Children are dying because the gun lobby is profiting. It's disgusting, he would say something like that. It's also untrue. It's mindless. The New York Times, by the way, said the same thing within hours of the shooting. The gun lobby, please. The NRA declared bankruptcy last year. 
The NRA is a husk. In 2021, for example, the tech company spent more than $70 million lobbying Congress. Big Pharma spent $92 million lobbying Congress in the first quarter of 2021 alone. The NRA spent just $2.2 million total lobbying in all of 2020, a presidential election year. Spare us. Whatever the problem is, it's not the gun lobby. They're not the reason those children were murdered yesterday. It's insulting and divisive and stupid. This is too serious a moment for nonsense like that. Stop. But over at MSNBC, they were completely convinced. Watch. And again, as President Biden said, I thought he, he did an extraordinary job last night. And I really do. I, I feel sorry for those who actually saw that and were actually forced to say something really about him after he did it. I mean, that that's how they make their money. It really makes me really sad for them that they have that dark of a soul, that they're that twisted. Oh, Joe Scarborough said a naughty word on TV. This must be serious. And in fact, it is very serious. In fact, it's too serious for tired partisan platitudes from the Reagan era. Update your profile. Politicians offering solutions to the tragedy that in the end serve only to make their political party more powerful should be excluded from this conversation. It is too important. They are speaking in bad faith, obviously. And so is anyone whose bodyguards carry extended magazines or other so-called weapons of war. They're hypocrites. They have no standing. Get back to us when you follow your own demands. And anyone on TV who's been accused of a crime should also take this opportunity to be very quiet. No one wants a moral lecture from you. But unfortunately, that's essentially all we're getting, more wind at a time when we need more than that. Beto O'Rourke is running for office again because he has no marketable skills, just stormed a press conference to berate Texas officials. He did this in front of the families of some of yesterday's victims. Watch. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. I don't like this. The next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No. You need to get his out of here. This isn't the place to talk to this over. This is totally predictable. When you, sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. I'm sure you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. It's only like you. Why don't you get out of here? Oh, come on. That's saving lives? That's making this a better country? Beta Rourke sounds like one of those lunatics from the Westboro Baptist Church gets off on making a scene. But that's essentially the answer we've gotten to how to fix and prevent what happened in Uvalde. <laughs> Please. Anyone who talks like this should be quiet for a minute and leave it to everybody else to figure out why this is happening. And this is bigger than a single mass shooting or even two of them in 10 days. There's been a huge increase in violence in America, on our streets, on public transportation, in our schools. It's not a guess, it's measurable. From January 1st to April 10th of this year, robberies in the New York transit system are up more than 70% year over year. Felony assaults in the subway have increased by 28%. Grand larceny, according to the NYPD, is up by more than 100%. Those are all crimes of violence. And that's just underground. The same thing is happening on the streets. And if you don't know it, you just got back to the country after a while. According to ABC News, quote, about 11% of violent crime in the city of Los Angeles involved a homeless person in 2018, 13% in 2019, and 15% in 2020. If that was a graph, 
it would look like that. Keep in mind, the homeless make up about 1% of the total population of Los Angeles, but they're involved in nearly a fifth of all violent crimes in the city. Oh, but ignore it. It's not happening. And yet everyone who lives here knows that it is happening because the numbers go up every year. And if you have kids, you know it's happening because it's the same story in the schools. The executive director of the National Association of School Resource Officers, Mo Kennedy, told Fox Business that schools are, quote, seeing more aggression in terms of fights. Sometimes they're shoving matches and sometimes they're flat out assaults. It's more misbehavior, thefts and those kinds of things in schools. It didn't used to happen. It's happening now. Why? It's not guns. It's not the gun lobby. More American families had guns at home 50 years ago than they do now. According to the Rand Corporation, which studied this, 45% of American homes had a gun in 1980. In 2016, that had dropped to 32%. So the problem is not that we're more armed than we were. The problem is that people have changed. Young men have changed. They're more violent. Why? That's the bipartisan conversation we need to have now. And that conversation has been drowned out by lunatic attention seekers who are hoping to win the next election. But we don't need them now. Never mind your election. There's something really wrong, and we can figure it out if we try. There are probably a lot of causes. The use of antidepressants in this country is increasing dramatically. Between 1991 and 2018, total SSRI consumption increased in the U.S. by more than 3,000%. 3,000%. Remember, these are supposed to reduce mental illness. Now, that's a real stat. It was published by the medical journal Science of the Total Environment. And it's not just this country. In Canada, state-funded antidepressant prescriptions for young people doubled over the last decade. Then, during the lockdowns, SSRI prescriptions increased even more. A pharmacy group called Express Scripts reported that antidepressant prescriptions went up by more than 20% during COVID. According to the latest figures, more than 40 million Americans are now taking psychoactive drugs. That's roughly one in 10. So again, the point of these drugs is to make you healthier mentally, to reduce suicide and violence. And yet suicide rates and rates of violence are spiking. Now, we don't know that that's causation, but it's worth looking at. Of course, it's immoral to criticize Big Pharma, but could we use an honest conversation about this? Yes, immediately. Clearly something's going on. Watch. Three major medical associations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, have together declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health caused by COVID. Parents report grief, anxiety, and depression among children citing school closures and forced isolations as the primary culprits. Suicide attempts among adolescents are rising sharply, most acutely among 12 to 17-year-old girls, by 51% since the start of the pandemic. Oh, so the lockdowns dramatically increase the incidence of mental illness among young people. And in 10 days, we've seen two mass shootings by mentally ill young people. Could there be a connection? Now, that's not finger pointing. It's not to blame Fauci for yesterday's shooting. We're not that low. We're not Joe Biden. But if people are becoming mentally ill because they're disconnected from others, what can we do to connect them to others and thereby reduce the incidence of mental illness? That's a real conversation. Is there a more important one? Meanwhile, more than 100,000 people just died of ODs. And the pandemic is responsible for some of that. Watch. 
New numbers out today from the CDC show how drug overdoses have surged during the pandemic. More than 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021. That's the highest annual death toll ever recorded and a 15% increase from the year before. Deaths involving fentanyl, meth and cocaine rose sharply. Okay, so people are doing more drugs, they're more unstable, they're killing themselves more often, and in some rare cases, they're killing others. Now, what kind of mindset would it take to go murder children in an elementary school? You are so disconnected from other human beings that that seems okay to you. What could be adding to the feeling of disconnection we have from one another? Well, in 2020, adults in the United States spent an average of eight hours every day on digital media, staring at a screen. The lockdowns made it worse. They're not the only cause, but they definitely exacerbated it. That's a 20% jump from 2019. One of the people who spent an awful lot of time online during the pandemic was the shooter in Uvalde. He reportedly played a lot of Call of Duty instead of going outside. The shooter in Buffalo also spent a lot of time online as well. In fact, he blamed the internet for radicalizing him. I spent almost a year planning this attack, he wrote on April 26th. Oh, how time flies. If I could go back, maybe I'd tell myself to get the F off 4chan and the world truth videos and get an actual life. Too late for that now. Now, that's not an argument for censoring those or any other sites. It's an argument for experiencing real life, nature, other people, animals, anything but a screen. Staring at a screen all day puts you into your own world. And in some small number of cases, it drives you insane. It makes you mentally ill and violent. That's very obvious. That's one of the reasons that people in Silicon Valley, the tech executives, don't let their own kids lose themselves in their stupid iPads. Back in September of 2013, after a mass shooting at the Washington Navy Yard, the late Charles Krauthammer identified the problem. We have a lot of mentally ill people, and we need to stop ignoring them. Obviously, we've ignored that warning, so here it is again. He needed help. 30 years ago, the cops would have brought him to a psychiatric emergency room. He probably would have gotten antipsychotics and he probably would, would have been hospitalized for a couple of weeks. That's the way it was done in the 70s when, when I practiced psychiatry. But today, that doesn't happen. The cops left. He was left on his own. He was a man who shouldn't have been on his own. He should have had the state looking after him. And he ended up killing people in a way that's, look, you want to respect the civil liberties of everybody. But there is a point in which if you don't take control of people who are clearly out of touch with reality, you are damaging them, exposing them, and of course, tragically exposing a lot of uh, innocence around them. Yeah, exactly. This stuff is complicated. The human mind is complicated. And if the environment changes, so does the mind. If people can't go outside or talk to other people or spend eight hours a day staring at a screen, if they're on brain-changing chemicals in huge numbers, tens of millions of people, you think that has an effect? Yeah. What effect? Well, is anyone studying what murderers, not just mass murderers, but all murderers have in common? Apparently not. It would be nice to know. Instead, they're telling us about the gun lobby. Please, no one believes that. And why, by the way, is the answer to mass shootings always universal gun confiscation? Shouldn't we be focused on the people who did it, on the dangerous people? It's like forcing the entire population into drug rehab in response to the fentanyl crisis. Probably better to focus on the addicts. Why did they get addicted? How can we help them? Let's be serious about this. Children died. It's real. Stop with the talking points. Be honest. Jason Whitlock is always honest. He's the host of Fearless. He joins us tonight. 
Jason, like it's, it's not even about gun control. I mean, at this point, it's not even like kind of worth arguing about gun control. It's just too stupid even to dignify with a response. But like, there's a deeper thing going on here. Why is no one saying that? Uh, it's much deeper. And Tucker, thank you for having me on because I think this is a very important topic and you've laid it out beautifully. Hey, look, big tech, these social media apps, this addiction, this dopamine addiction that they have given all of us, our smartphones, they're our enemies. They are disconnecting yes. our human connection. Yes. This young man, Salvador Ramos or whatever, uh, lived a very isolated life. His family was in tatters. Uh, allegedly, his mother was a drug abuser. He's living with his grandmother. There doesn't appear to be a connection to his father. He's online playing Call of Duty. He's connecting with other human beings through direct messages, instant messages over Instagram. This whole world we've built, this social media matrix, it is not good for our minds. And I'll go all the way uh, to everyone's most favorite president, Barack Obama, an example we saw today that you did not reference. This is a very smart man. I believe Barack Obama is very smart. I believe social media has damaged his mind. He used this tragedy in Texas and 19 slaughtered children to venerate and celebrate George Floyd. He stood George Floyd on the bodies of 19 dead children over Twitter. Before social media, his mind would never go to connect George Floyd to 19 slaughtered children. And we must remember and celebrate George Floyd. It's ridiculous, but it speaks to what social media has done to our points of view, our ability to critically think. We're building lives based around how we come across over social media apps that are not real human interaction. He would never say these things in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with, any, with anybody in Texas who just experienced this. You can't right. compare the slaughter of 19 children to a drug user and habitual criminal who resisted arrest and lost his life tragically because a policeman crossed the line. There's no comparison to innocent children being slaughtered. Don't stand George Floyd on the dead bodies of children. But this is what social media baits all of us to do. That's a smart man that was the president of the United States. Take it down to these kids and how they built their entire lives around their social media platforms and how can I be famous? And they don't care how you become famous over social media. If it's the slaughter of other human beings or if it's shaking your rear end nakedly on an OnlyFans account, whatever it takes, just do it. We, we've got a mental illness pandemic going on across America and really across the globe. And we're ignoring it because, hey, let's just get rid of the guns. That'll fix it. Yeah, I, I'd be sympathetic to get rid of the iPhones. Uh, I, I really would. Uh, <laughs> I'm not in charge, thank God. Uh, Jason Willock, thank you. Deep as always and much appreciated. Thank you. So Joe Biden took this opportunity. You're off balance and grieving. So he snuck through an executive order to change the country more. He did that today to mark the two years since George Floyd's death. But it's not going to make your community any safer. It will make him more powerful. That's always the point. We'll explain what it is next. Okay, these are a lot of uh, very serious issues, but... No one ever talks about the serious issue 
of you want to send a Microsoft Word document to someone and you don't want them to see all the changes you've made on it. You don't want them to see the, the tracking. You don't want them to see the development of this document. Now, let's say, God forbid, I was wanting to write a letter to some young woman for whom I developed a great deal of respect. I mean, maybe she was a, a licensed clinical social worker. Maybe she was a marriage and family therapist. Maybe she was a life coach. Maybe she was a yoga teacher. Uh, maybe she was an aromatherapist. Okay, maybe she teaches algebra to high school students. Right? Like so many of these, these very worthy professions, maybe she's a, a, a publicist. And I'm trying to write her a letter. All right, I'm an old-fashioned 19th century Victorian gentleman. I'm trying to write her a letter about how much I respect her. And let's say that there are certain points during the composition of the letter, I'm not like fully connected to my higher power. Maybe there are certain points during the composition of this letter where my writing becomes a lot more visceral than, than what I, I really wanted. God forbid. Like maybe there were fits and starts in, in my composition. I mean, You've heard of the yellow peril? Well, this is MS Word tracking peril, right? I, I'm just trying to give you an objective correlative, right? Is that is that how you pronounce it, objective correlative? This was uh, developed by uh, T.S. Eliot, right? A phrase to describe a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula for a particular emotion that the poet feels and hopes to evoke in the reader. I, I mean, I'm the poet, you're the reader. Here we go. I'm trying to create an objective correlative. And, okay, I, I was not what you'd call a good Christian today. All right, when I was growing up, if you'd seen some of my behavior today, I, I pitched a fit. Like, I just lost it. I was cursing up a storm. Because I had to click through about 25 Google links, read about 25 pages on the Internet, watch about five YouTube videos, to get the simple of answer, how do you transmit a Microsoft Word document with someone being able to see all the changes that you made on that document? Like, I was under pressure. I was under deadline. My love could not wait. All right? I mean, here I am. I'm trying to perhaps, like, just using an objective correlative, uh, trying to create an, an eloquent letter to a woman about how much I respect her. And, and now let's say she's able to go back through the tracking and see some disrespectful, visceral musing I did when I was in a less evolved space. Like, I'm a holy man. I'm a very respectable man. A lot of people look up to me. Right? But there are certain situations, there are certain scenarios where I'm not as respectful with regard to women as I should be. I am not as, as godly and holy and, and considerate as I should be. Like, there are certain scenarios whereby, like, if the woman plays you know performs as my therapist or she she god forbid she she plays a haughty bitch and like talks down to me while i go for it all right god forbid god forbid like occasionally these like filthy shameful things you know come into my head when, when i'm writing when I, i'm less connected to my higher power i'm in a less evolved place like i in the, in the composition of this document i made of might have just laid myself emotionally raw 
right? I, I just might have written down to, to the bare essence of myself. I might have just like opened up a vein, so to speak, objective, correlative, and, and just like bled all over this Microsoft Word document. And, and God forbid we should all be Zohar to not write shameful things in Microsoft Word documents and to not pitch fits about Gashmias. Gashmias is, is the world of, of flesh and reality around us. Let us all be okay to live in the world of Ruknius, of spiritual things, so you don't have to do this. But why on earth do I have to click through 25 links and speed through five YouTube videos to, to find out you know, how the hell I get out of this situation? Today, more than 100,000 young Americans have died of drug ODs in the last 12 months. You don't know their names. You never will. Nobody cares about them. But today we are reminded once again to celebrate the life of a violent, convicted felon drug addict called George Floyd, who died two years ago today in police custody. All deaths are sad, but why this sadder than most? They never explained that, but Joe Biden did mark the occasion with an executive order promoting something called police accountability. The order mandates more restrictive use of force rules for federal law enforcement. Before he signed the order... Biden explained it was necessary because black people in this country are all terrified knowing that the police could kill them at any time. Why this nation? Why so many black Americans wake up knowing they could lose their life in the course of just living their life today? Simply jogging, shopping, sleeping at home. Because if there's one person in America who speaks with the deep concerns of black people, it would needless to say be Joe Biden. He definitely has got his finger on the pulse. What does this mean, though? What are the public policy implications for you of what Biden just did? Well, no one knows more about the subject than Heather McDonald. She's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, author of The Diversity Delusion. We're always grateful to have her. Heather McDonald, thanks so much for coming on. What will this do? Thank you. Well, the problem with this executive order, Tucker, is, is the narrative that it represents rather than the policy details which apply only to federal law enforcement and are limited in scope. But the narrative of this executive order is that we have a police racism and a police violence problem in the country. Uh, Biden takes every opportunity to reinforce that idea, and the results are in, and they are unequivocal. Thousands more black lives lost in cities succumbing to predation and anarchy. After the George Floyd riots of 2020, homicides rose 29 percent. That's the largest annual increase in history. And youth homicide rose an astounding 47 percent. The victims, overwhelmingly black. Two dozen blacks are killed every day in this country. That's more than all white and Hispanic homicide victims combined. They're not being killed by the police. They're not being killed by whites. They're being killed by other blacks. The police are not the problem in the black community. Criminals are. Uh, the police shot six allegedly unarmed blacks in 2021. Compare that to the 10,000 blacks who were killed by criminals. In fact, a police officer is 400 times as likely to be killed by a black as an unarmed black is to be killed by a police officer. George Floyd's death was sickening, but it wasn't a pattern. It doesn't represent the way most blacks die. And if Biden really cared about black lives, he would call for law and order and stop demonizing the cops. It's I wonder how long they can. I mean, this is all about the upcoming midterm elections and get out the vote and all that stuff. But what he said is so patronizing and disconnected from reality. Does it still work? I think it does. There's still people who absolutely do not want to confront the problem in the inner city 
which is the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of norms, and want to keep demonizing police officers, even though the crime is now spreading across the country. Uh, the carjackings are happening, these absolutely insane drive-by shootings that are mowing down kids. There seems to be an endless appetite uh, for a phony narrative that only produces anarchy and predation. Anarchy is exactly right. Heather McDonald, always with the facts. Great to see you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. So here's a story that we haven't talked about enough. DeepMind is a British technology company that is owned, like most things, by Google. DeepMind says it's developed an artificial intelligence that is, exceeds the capacity of human beings. Think about that. So the top reason. Okay, so let's say I, I complete my Microsoft Word document. I, I do all this study to figure out how to transmit this document in a way where people are not going to be able to see the, the changes that I've made. I transmit said document, and when people open it up, it's covered in a sea of red changes. Like I did all this work, didn't work, documents covered in red changes. How do you think that makes me look? Right? It makes me look like a rank amateur, makes me look like a tosser. I mean, not very impressive whatsoever. Gosh. And so I don't rest on my laurels. I don't say, oh, no big deal. Why sweat it? I keep searching until I find the truth. So if you ever have this problem, right, there are certain things you can know that you can do, all right? But there's no easy solution to this, right? You won't believe how much work you have to do to get out of this problem. All right. How to remove personal information in Microsoft Word on a document with track changes. Okay, you have to go to check for issues, inspect document, make sure it's saved in docx format, then click file to click on info under prepare for sharing and from check for issues options, click inspect document. And then you have to unclick all the documents, all the boxes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You have to unclick all those documents, right? And then, oh, 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 I didn't even do this right. Okay, except uh, the second one for document properties and personal information, click inspect all. You'll start inspecting for specific elements. Once inspection is completed, only click remove all beside the item saying document properties and personal information. And that will remove the track changes, comments, and other information. All right, that's what you have to do to send a Microsoft Word document to to stop people being able to track your changes. It's incredibly arduous, and you're saying, oh, 40, just uh, write, write it out in, in pen. I didn't have time, right? Deadlines were pressing down upon me. I mean, you may sing to me, love comes slowly. Well, sometimes love comes furiously. Sometimes obligations come furiously. And you say, oh, 40, just save it as a PDF and transmit it as a PDF. I couldn't save it and transmit it as a PDF because the document needed further editing on the other side. I just didn't want to look like a jerk. I didn't want to look like some abo, uh, God forbid, like some, you know, outback Australian, uh, what do they call, what do they call those Australians who aren't very cultured? Well, I didn't want to look like an uncultured Australian. I want to look like a sophisticated man of 55 who's been around and knows how to use Microsoft Word. But could I pull that off? No, I couldn't. And then there are all those hoops that I have to jump through. And 
at the same time, have to like save some space in my head to prepare for another scintillating show. So I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to help my fellow man. I'm trying to put a few dollars in my pocket. I'm trying to meet my obligations, professional, personal, whatever. I'm trying to meet my obligations. I'm trying to be good to you, good to me. Like trying to be be good to everyone that that I encounter. I'm trying to be, you know, a light in a world of darkness. And and then when when they get the document, it's covered in a sea of red ink. After all that I've done. Like it shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't live in a world where people have to go through so many hoops where people have to click 25 different Google links, where people have to power through five different YouTube videos. And then when they finally find the answer, they shouldn't have to unclick seven, six different boxes, leave one box uh, clicked on. And then on that box, click uh, inspect the document property. You have to click inspect. And then once inspection is completed, click remove all beside the item saying document property. You shouldn't have to go through all that to to create a Microsoft Word document to share with someone else where they then can't go through and you know see all the changes. What if there was something shameful in there? Like what if there was something that was not reflective of who I really am? What if I wrote something in a fit where I was not connected to the one true God? What if I forgot just for a moment, like, the the divine revelation at Mount Sinai. What if I was not completely up to date? What if I did not have the teachings of the Chafetz Chaim, right, in my prefrontal cortex about what is permitted and what is unpermitted speech? What if I was a little rusty on the Shulchan Aruch? What if I was in some kind of headspace where I could not recall just instantaneously the contents of you know, 68 folio volumes of Talmud? Like, uh, I have my weaknesses, Right? I have my vulnerabilities. Maybe I've just been bitten by another stingray. It's too much. And and does anyone talk about this? No. They talk about shootings. They talk about police changes. They talk about Russia versus Ukraine. But nobody has the balls to talk about MS Word tracking peril and how our elites are using this to imprison us. I've sent out documents unknowingly you know, revealing their editing history. And now our globalist elites have those documents under their control and they're going to use it to blackmail me so that I can't say certain things on this show. Like my whole future is being compromised because Microsoft Word is in bed with the globalists. And next thing I know, they're going to make me marry a man or they're going to reveal, you know, some indiscretion that the, that I committed when I was in a less evolved space, when I wasn't really spiritually fit. And now I've become this totally different man, but they'll grab something from my past when I was less evolved. And and how's that going to make me look? I mean... People want to, like, not be murderers and rapists, but it's pretty crazy that they would be down for that and would say it openly. I'm just saying, that's pretty crazy. Well, it's supposed to be, like, this, like, super religious catholic conservative movement oh. oh we have in the folder i don't know if you have it pulled up it's the kill rape and die png oh god okay or, or whatever it or is. web like, or the web yeah class oh, shit, so what if class schwab ever wants to black okay. me? worst whoever invented by the way wp like format i hope your family's dead and you have to witness their oh murder. disavow 
Oh, buddy. Anyway, okay. go ahead. So this is from Nick Fuentes' alt Twitter account. He's retweeted it. This is where he's been doing all these Twitter spaces. <clears throat> and uh, what he's retweeted is, this guy says, I am loyal to the Holy Trinity above all. Regardless, I will rape, kill, and die. And then he life. says, based. And he's based. And this is not what they're doing. Everybody in the movement is having to pledge to rape, kill, and die. Nick. God forbid. This is the mental state that they're in. Okay, this is this is the mindset of the movement right now. If you have a snapshot in time of what represents America First right now, it's this image. Now, I want to go to Nick's show last night to show you the mental condition he's in. I think it's called, like, Meltdown Montage, okay. or it's a Meltdown Mashup. <laughs> oh, God. So this is, this way, is where, where he's at last as of last night. Usually people want to, like, not be murderers and rapists, but it's pretty crazy that they would be down for that and would say it openly. I'm just saying, that's pretty crazy to well, me. It's supposed to be, like, this, like, super religious, Catholic, conservative movement that involves rape. Like, I don't know where, like, <laughs> debate whether or not Christians could be soldiers or not because of God's command not to kill. You know, Cornelius was a centurion in the Bible, and people argue, well, you know, we never saw an account of him repenting, and he was a soldier, so a Christian could be... But, you know, we've never really seen it be justified at all where you could rape <laughs> Jesus. And uh, Laponia says, I'm not sure if these two, meaning PPP, People's Pundit, and Andy Worski, can criticize each other's mental condition. Look, we're all crazy here, but we're not all crazy in identical ways. So yes, I, I think PPP and Andy Worski often have some very sharp critiques of other people, just as other people often have some sh sharp critiques of them. Like sometimes Laponius has some very sharp and, and valid critiques of me. Sometimes I, I may have some good points vis-a-vis Laponius. So I, I think what we should do it's like, let's go around the room. Everyone introduce yourself by your first name and the nature of your addiction. Well, technically... There's no commands where Jesus says, thou shalt go out and rape. Like when he was giving the great commission to the disciples, it goes out, go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every corner and to every generation, like to all nations. But he said, like, go out into the world and rape the women of each corner of the world. Like, it's just not really how it went, but I guess in Groyperland, I mean, Catholics don't even read the Bible anyway, so it, it is what it is, but yikes okay so just just pause for a minute and i want you to meditate what what was your role in the death of george floyd so terrific atlantic magazine article here the america that killed george floyd so you might have thought that it was george floyd's drug abuse that killed him you might have thought it was his criminal history that killed him might have thought it was his wanton cruelty and irresponsibility and life of antisocial behavior that killed him. But no, it was it was America, meaning in particular you, who killed George Floyd. And uh, just wonderful article here by Imbolo Mabui. And thank God he begins with a personal reflection. In the late 1990s, long after, not long after I left Cameroon to attend college in the United States, thank God he came from Cameroon the United States to morally uplift us and let us know where we were falling short and to let us know how we were you know, murdering our, our fellow Americans with our casual and institutional racism. And uh, he says, days after George Floyd was killed, I attended a Zoom memorial organized by Africans for Africans. Those, those are the best Zoom memorials. So we could mourn his death together and think of how we as a community could better treat our American brethren. The ludicrousness of this was not lost on me, right? That, that, that Africans for Africans could, could 
take take a minute to think about how they could better treat their American brethren. I mean, how ludicrous is that? That it would take so long, take a tragedy of this public magnitude for us to see what America had been doing to our brothers and sisters. That, I mean, that's why he came here from Cameroon so he could participate vicariously and realistically and personally in this horrible tragedy of public magnitude to see what America had been doing to our brothers and sisters. So, uh, you know, tons and tons, millions and millions and millions of uh, black people have moved to the United States so that they could participate in a tragedy of this public magnitude, right? Why would it take a graphic video for both immigrants and citizens of America to comprehend what they'd wrought in fostering an environment in which African-Americans are so often treated like animals? See, it's your fault, right? It's not George Floyd sticking a gun in the stomach of a pregnant woman. It's not George Floyd's long criminal history. It's not George Floyd's long history of irresponsibility. It's not George Floyd's long history of antisocial behavior. It's not George Floyd's extensive use and abuse of drugs and alcohol. No, it's your fault. So have you read this new book? His name is George Floyd. Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olurunipa mentioned that George Floyd wanted to change the world. So when George Floyd wasn't sticking guns in people's stomachs, when he wasn't abusing drugs and alcohol, when he wasn't committing crimes, when he wasn't in prison, when he wasn't doped, drugged, pissed out of his mind, as long as anyone can remember, George Floyd wanted the world to know his name. So his aspirations were quite ordinary. He wanted to be an athlete. Wow. That's a shocker. And to achieve fame and fortune. And you know what stood in his way? It's not any fault on the part of George Floyd. It's not his predilections for abusing people, abusing himself, abusing our society. Like abusing guns, abusing drugs, abusing alcohol, abusing the criminal justice system. No, not, none of those things stood in his way of being coming a, an athlete and achieving fame and fortune. It was only American racism that stood in his way. Well, Floyd did stand his own way, but that was all, all that drinking and drugging and who knows, raping and pillaging and sticking guns in pregnant women's bellies. That was a reaction to American racism standing in his way. And, and this American racism, it created an unsustainable situation that was all but bound to explode. It's America. It's not just America. It's you who is to blame for the death of George Floyd. Okay, let's get a little. Hello, everyone. Here. Peter Zion here, coming to you from a super exciting hotel room in downtown Dallas. Mm, fancy. Uh, today, I wanted to talk about what's going on with the war in Ukraine from an alliance point of view, specifically NATO. On May 18, the Swedes and the Finns submit, submitted a joint application to join the NATO alliance to the excitement of many countries around the region, uh, including the Germans, including the French, including the Brits, including the Americans and the Canadians. Uh, even the Italians seemed really excited. But one country did not, and that one country is Turkey. Now, the Turks charge that there are a number of countries out there, including most notably Sweden, who have been providing too much assistance to groups the Turks don't much care for. Uh, the group in question are the, the Kurdish militias that operate not just in Turkey, but specifically in Syria, and who have been part of the Syrian civil war now since its beginning about, what are we, seven years ago now? Uh, the Turks say that as long as countries...
So most people I know from this show don't like to belong to any serious community that could ever crimp their style in any way, that ever causes certain restrictions on their predilections, right? anything that, that's going to get in their way, you know, then they're not really down for that. And uh, they can't do their own thing when they want to do their own thing. To join a community means you have obligations to others and you, you have to develop a, an ability to see things from someone else's point of view. And frankly, seeing things from someone else's point of view that requires work, right? Empathy is frequently you know, hard work. And who wants to work understanding other people's point of view? So many people just don't want to bother with community. But hey, I'm perfectly happy, bro, doing my own thing. Well, I don't buy it, actually. No learner is happy. People are born, evolved to live in a tribe, right? You're born to live in community. Life works much better for 99.9% .9 of people living in community. But I think the number one reason why people don't want to live in community is that it requires a little bit of effort. You have to extend your empathy to other people. You have to learn how other people see things and you have to make some sacrifices. All right. You can't just do everything you want because you think it's right. Right. You think it's wonderful, but you have to cramp your self-expression to fit in with the predilections of your group at times, even when you know your group is wrong. Are funding or arming or politically supporting groups that are shooting at Turks, they can't be considered allies. Now, while the big issue of the day remains Russia and the Ukraine war, the Turks have a point. It's difficult to imagine countries being militarily allied with countries who are then working to undermine their own security. And in the NATO alliance, each individual country has full veto power over who can join. So if the Swedes and the Finns cannot have a heart to heart with Turks over what is possible and what is not possible, the Swedes will not get in. Just as Russia is an issue of paramount import to the Swedes, the Finns, the Poles and others, Turkey considers the Kurdish issue to be an issue of paramount import. And since they have veto power, they will use it unless they get their way. What the Swedes and the Finns are discovering is that if you want to be part of an alliance, you have to make your peace with everyone who is there already. And that encourages countries to see the world through the eyes of other places. One of the reasons why the American alliance system has been so successful going back to the 1940s is that the Americans are pretty good at this because they have their fingers in a lot of pots. And so it's easy for us as Americans to understand the security concerns of Poland and Japan at the same time because we're active in both places. But the reverse is not necessarily true. The Poles don't understand the security implications of Japan or Korea and vice versa because they have no interest in that area. So it's very easy for these countries to play it fast and loose in someone else's region and really not care. NATO makes this a little bit more awkward because the NATO alliance is now 30 countries and they have interests in Africa. They have interests in the Caribbean. They have interests in South America. They have interests in the former Soviet space. And it takes the United States to kind of corral the cats, so to speak, to make sure that everyone has seen everything from everyone points of, everyone's point of view. And it doesn't always work. But for Sweden and Finland, this is a first. Sweden has been out of the great power game since the, since the Napoleonic Wars. Finland hasn't been in the great power game at all. Their only concern has always been Russia. And they are going to have to find a way to pacify the Turks, and that probably means throwing the Kurds under the bus. And, and sorry to the Kurds, this has happened over and over and over in history. But in order for the NATO alliance to get what it wants, in order for the Swedes and the Finns to get what they want, they're going to have to see this from Turkey, Turkey's point of view. Now, this is hardly a new concept. It happens anytime there's an alliance that touches more than one region. I think the Quad in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean is a great example. 
Now, the Quad is an informal grouping of four countries, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States, with kind of the United Kingdom as a off-again, on-again number member, uh, that is designed primarily to hedge in the Chinese, to exchange political and technological information in order to work towards that goal. Now, the Australians have been working with the Americans for a very long time. They understand that the Americans have fingers in a lot of, pot, a lot of pots and are usually pretty good at understanding different points of view. The Japanese, less so. Uh, they used to have an extra-regional empire that was destroyed in World War II, and they've kind of spent the rest of the time since then cowering in the Americans' shadow. That started to loosen up a little bit, and the Japanese government has flat-out paid extortion money to the Trump administration in order to make sure they were still part of the American alliance structure. So there's an understanding in Tokyo that if the Americans say something is good and needed to be done, the Japanese pretty much snap too. great example there would be the sanctions on Russia. Japan, despite trying to be neutral on all things Russia since World War II, was the third country to sign up for the sanctions package, which leaves India. India is an independent pole in international affairs. They have a country that they're really concerned about, too, really, uh, Pakistan and especially China. And it doesn't really sink in with the Indians that there are other countries that might have concerns. So the Indians have turned into the biggest sanctions buster of the Ukraine war so far. Yeah, so if you want to be happy and effective and enhance your chances of survival in a complicated, often dangerous world, you have to learn to get along with other people see things from the point of view of other people and sometimes put a higher priority on what other people want so that you can be happy and form alliances, right? We're all locked in an iron cage together. That's the state of nature. That's the state of the world. And to maximize our chances of surviving and thriving, we have to learn to see things from other people's point of view, put down our own predilections at times, play the long game, develop some empathy for others. Are. Even the Chinese are drastically reducing their imports and exports to and from Russia. But the Indians are doing the opposite because they have not let, learned that an alliance means you have to see the world through someone else's eyes. So Sweden, India, same general problem. And at some point, they're going to decide that partnership with other countries is worth them swallowing some policies that those other countries don't much care for. For the Turks, it's the Kurds. For the Indian, it's going to be the Russians. We're not there yet, but we're getting there pretty quick. Because deglobalization. Right. If you want to be in a relationship with, with anyone, you have to swallow some things that you don't like. Now, I don't mean you have to swallow you know, those things, literally, that you don't like. No, you, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. Globalization is picking up speed and international supply chains are breaking down. And countries very soon are going to have to pick sides and decide what it is that they can live with and what it is they can live without. And that's as true for foreign policy and morals as it is for semiconductors and cars. That's where we're headed. Now, Laponius is saying some very disrespectful things about Peter Zion in the chat. So who are the pundits that you respect? Who are Laponius's favorite public intellectuals now that George Floyd is no longer with us? And what the heck's going on with Beardson? Not the only one down bad in the movement. Oh. Beardson is down so bad. I ain't ever seen a nick down this bad. Guys, this, this is actually worse. This is like depressing. Like, listen to him. Like, we have things to review here, but this is kind of just, like, from our first episode to this, like, what has happened? Beardson is old, L. Yeah, so what, nigga? My whole life's L's. Like, wait. His whole life is L's. <laughs> Imagine just saying that, like, oh, his whole life is L's. No! This is supposed to be the second in command of the movement to save America? His whole life is L's. Look and listen to this guy speak and then say, man, I really want to be like him. I really want to be in this movement, and, and I get to go to AFPAC, but my whole life will just be a series of L's. 
gets even worse, man. Like, How? there's other clips where he's going even worse. Oh. Like, just play this for a couple minutes here, and we'll move to the next clip. How how sad were you when you watched this live? Well, I don't know if I was sad. Like, I just I was I was happy to be honest that I found some content for the show and I laughed at him. <laughs> you just think like how sad this man's life is. Like, how down bad you are to proclaim that your whole life is a series of L's. <laughs> just think of the optics of the statement for the movement before you say such things. I didn't He's know. not getting any donation. He's not getting any donations these days. Nick's turned off the donations, turned off the multiplier for him. He's down bad, and he has to beg in the gutter to the few pay pigs he has left. And Guys, my whole life's owls. Please, just give me some money. Absolutely. Wow. This is crazy. Alright. Think I give a fuck? Every day, I wish to die. Okay? Okay. (laughs) Wait, wait. Wait. Back-to-back statements. Within 13 seconds, you go... Okay, so number one, this is performance. Alright, this may not be a complete 100% objective correlative with reality, all right? So I'm performing here. You think I, I sound this wonderful, look this wonderful as, as I just go about my day? This is a performance, all right? Beardson's putting on a performance. The performance does not necessarily correlate 100% with reality. I suspect there's a pretty high correlation with reality here. And let's just, for the sake of discussion, assume that what Beardson is saying is true. And think about how much pain and aggravation that would cause for anyone who cares about him. Think about the drag that that would exert on his friends and family and community and his, his priest or pastor. My whole life is a series of... So I've belonged to a lot of synagogues and I've belonged to a lot of churches. And it's usually just a tiny number of people in each church or each synagogue that just creates headaches, that just creates aggravation, right? You could have 5,000 people driving down Interstate 80 uh, correctly, obeying the law. It just takes one schmuck to ruin things for 15,000 other people who then get delayed. And it's, it's true in, in real life. You can have a wonderful office setting where you get along with everyone, but one person can turn it toxic. Now, one person could overturn a synagogue or a church or a bowling club or a mosque or a yoga center. And if what he's describing is accurate, then I, I can't imagine the the yoga classes and churches and educational institutions that host Beardson are giddy with joy. Every day I wish to die. Then you're like, whoa, I really want to join this political movement. (laughs) Sounds like you guys are winning. Sounds like it's going real well. (laughs) What the fuck? Wait, is he he quoting someone? No, no, bro, listen, listen, play it. Listen to him go. Is this this like an own on me? Oh, Beardson's old. Hell, nigga, being old is the least of my fucking problems, all right? Oh, trust me. Trust me when I say being old, least of my concerns at this point. Honestly, being old is a fucking blessing because it's one one day closer to death. (laughs) So is this the new America first that uh, killing and raping and dying are based, according to Nick Fuentes, and wishing you were dead, according to Beardson? Like, this is down bad. Like, my man down real bad. Beardson, what happened? What happened, buddy? What? Ha- yeah, he was so hyped about AF. He was riding high in April, shot down in May. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he'll right. be back on top. 
back on top of you. This is like some of the saddest shit ever, bro. That's like... You, you described this to me while I was in training today. You're just like, oh, I have a clip of, of Beardson being like, he's down bad. And in my head, I'm like in the middle of training, so I have to focus, right? But I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I didn't think... Guys, instead of chortling about this, instead of using this for entertainment, we should all be reaching out to Beardson and asking how we can help. How can we be of service? How can we lift our brother up? All right, we're just going to let our, our brother wish he was dead. All right, we're just going to you know, let him go through life absolutely miserable. It isn't a time that we reach out to Beardson and, and show this guy radical love and inclusion. Who is <laughs> like, I hope I die tomorrow. What's up? He's drinking water, no more Chick-fil-A, can't afford Chick-fil-A. At least he's drinking water, folks. It's true. You niggas be like, oh, Beardson's old, nigga, I'm, 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 that's the Whoa. W in my life. No! Whoa, Even disavow. Even was like, do we it's have like, to? Listen, can we shut this down? <laughs> like, let me, let me just, like, like, he's done. Like, it's rough lives, because Beardson fucked up his life by having no actual applicable real-world skills having to be the servant of a mexican child leader of the white race that's half his age i want to think about the like my hookers and bloke comment the only reason i bring that up is, is, is like my point is like america and politics like it sucks believe me what's happening it sucks balls let's be fair here okay but make the best of it with your life like you don't yeah. have oh is biden yeah. being gay Listen all right don't watch biden and my example like just party do whatever you want find a chick to hang out with watch movies do something else play games anything place work out hit the fucking gym go hike. Life take somebody advice. like nick or dalton and put them in that zone and they would thrive it's not their way <laughs> so he says he thrives like, in the gutter only i oh, can thrive only i can thrive in the gutter with a cardboard <laughs> sign in my handout Nobody else can be a homeless, filthy bum better than I. Let me tell you. He's that little, like, blade of grass in, like, the apocalypse zone. That is one bla blade of grass exists. World. It's not where How they fit in. How can you be in. thriving if you're in the gutter? Like, I thrive whoa. in the gutter. What is this cope? We've hit cope. maximum cope. Copium, uh, like, wow. Uh, Like the cope, I. It's like like that you know a factory where it's like a pressure valve on like a yeah. cylinder. It's like it's like on the red. It's just a cope. Like you're gonna explode in cope here. That's where I belong. I belong in the gutter. I belong in the trash. I I'm you glad know? you agree with us. Like what? Like these statements? Like belong in the gutter. Belong in the trash. Like yes, Pearson. <laughs> yes. This the whole message is like we throw you in the trash. Fuentes should throw you in the trash, dude. You can't, you can't be saying shit like this and then be like, "I'm gonna lead America. We're, I'm gonna be a big part of the movement to save the West." I just belong in the gutter. I'm the trash. Oh, this is so fucking funny. You know, and I can thrive there. I really do feel that way. I feel like I can thrive this there. This is so funny. You know, alone, just rummaging around, being an asshole. You know, really popping off. That's where I belong. I'm a trash guy. That's why I started the trash right. I, I mean. <laughs> Trash right. I'm a trash guy. He's a trash guy and he started the trash right. Just remember, Groypers, you guys are a part of the trash right. Just like, it's like that skit from um, whatever, and they look up, they're like the Nazis, and they look up at their skull cap and they're like, buy the baddie? It's like, you listen to this, like the trash right, and it's like, 
Am I wasting my life for nothing? Fucking fuck. Yes, young Groiper, like, the leader is talking about how he belongs in the gutter. <laughs> how he's a trash person. If you just follow the trash right, you can just be like him. Pressed and in the gutter, you belong. Imagine you heard me say this, like, you want to talk, like, in private and DM? Like, so, Andy, like, like, are you all right, bud? Like, fearing for your fucking sanity, let alone you say this publicly. So shorter than my mate. Because here's <laughs> Joe to entertain people. Nah, we're too public right now. Hey, Dick, how you doing? What's up, bitch? What are you doing, bitch? Ethan Ralph. I can't help you, Frick. Back in Lisbon. Who should know what the trash right is? You can rap before you were a little dickhead. You fat little gun shit. Yeah, that's right, bleeding. Look at you. Fast our day! Bitch. I'm not in all too different right now. Hey, you got a massive lump on your head, dude. I don't know, right? What's going on there? What's going on there? Dickhead, let's go and get some fucking smoke. Are you really going again? Ralph, you're going to get battered if you keep squaring. Stop! Stop squaring up to him, you fat con! Why are you squaring up to him, you fat con? Frick. We're walking away. Now fuck That's off. Right. Fuck you, bitch. Fuck Walk you, we're away. walking away. Walk away or I'll have you. Walk away or I'll have you. Walk away. Walk away, you fucker. Oh, that big bitch. Think about it. Fuck it, we'll leave. Oh, you're follow. Yeah. You're just following. Oh, video it, Rob. Go for it. I'll run away. Shut up. No, we're not. Like you're a garbage gutter. You've got me first. It's on my fucking camera. You're retarded. You should just preserve what you're respecting yourself. Move on to another ideology. No, that's not true. Okay. Yeah. I'm just like watching Better Call Saul. You know, there was a scene this is where beyond he gets his you can tell us he is Jimmy McGill. Oh, no, <laughs> Fuck, no. He, is, he is. 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 He gets up, he gets in his, like, car, and he drives to the old, like, shitty nail salon where his law office used to be. He pulls out the old pull-out couch, and he lays down in that shitty place. He immediately falls asleep. And I, I just relate it with that scene so much, because that's how it felt, that's how it feels for me. Honestly. All right, folks. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, that's the end of this clip. In my opinion. <laughs> that's just he's beyond. Well, actually, play it, for, I think he's about to say that. Okay, let's get some Torah. Um, if you need it, uh, but the point is that money could also be seen in the same way, perhaps, couldn't it? It's... So some uh, modern Orthodox rabbi said it was permitted to carry money on the Sabbath if you're moving through a dangerous neighborhood so that if you get mugged, you can give the money to your mugger and you'll be less likely to get hurt. To save your life. Uh, I'm not sure. If we have experts in Hukha Shabbos, uh, we, we did see that the rabbis said... Uh, I can tell you that the people carry guns to show all the time in America today, and uh, no one thinks that that's a uh, violation of halacha, as far as I know. Um, 
we we carry telephones also for Hatzalah and things like this, even if it might be far-fetched, uh, but it could happen. So uh, how far do you take this? Um, uh, 20 years ago, uh, no one would... Okay, so Orthodox Jews are not supposed to carry on the Sabbath, they're not supposed to carry money, in particular, not supposed to touch money. But if you're living in a high-crime area or Hatzalah is a Jewish ambulance service that often arrives at the scene way before the the regular ambulance service, so it's it's a way for the Jewish community to look after each other. There are also all these Jewish uh, security patrols, so Jews are increasingly getting armed, uh, getting organized. Carry gun, we would say it's usher to carry gun to Shalom Shabbos. So usher means forbidden. Uh, even though 20 years ago, it's also theoretically possible anyone could break into our show in Chutz Haaretz. Uh, so I I don't know where, where you draw the line on this and uh, when it's uh, okay. It's a great story from Rabbi Reese that uh, once on the simplest Torah, the Rav was learning with a bunch of students and uh, the phone uh, rang and of course, uh, oh, the phone rang and the Rav gets up and he goes to the next room and he picks it up and he starts speaking on the phone on Yom Tov. And uh, the Rav day. comes back and he sees the students. Of course, they're a little surprised. What's the Rav doing? Talk? The Rav is not like Rabbi Rackman. Rabbi Rackman held that you could talk on the phone on Yom Tov. The Rav didn't hold this. But uh, he told them the story as follows, that uh, in the morning before he went to, sh- uh, before he went to show, the telephone was ringing, just kept ringing, and they wouldn't answer it. After davening, they came back home. In the middle of lunch, uh, a non-Jewish neighbor rings the doorbell, and he tells them that he has a telegram for Soloveitchik. And Soloveitchik says to him, you know, we don't open it, so the man understood whatever he opened. So the Rav is Rav, Rabbi Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, a leading modern Orthodox rabbi in America who died about uh, 28 years ago. And, uh, the telegram, and uh, the telegram uh, said... Lift up the answer the phone, Chaim Heller. And what was the story? Rav Chaim Heller was in Lakewood over Yom Tov and he became quite ill. And the doctor says he immediately needs to uh, have an operation. And he did not want to have this operation without consulting with Rav Soloveitchik. So the telegram, so Rav Soloveitchik was speaking to Rav Chaim Heller. And that was regarded as, I don't know if on Yom Tov it has to be Pikuach Nefesh, but it was a serious uh, matter. And that's the story that uh, Bill I carried. Furthermore, Okay, so it's a part of traditional Jewish life that you're kind of expected to have a rav. You're expected to have some kind of relationship with a rabbi that you can bounce your questions off, not just about Jewish law, but about you know life in general, so that you just don't go off half-cocked. So everyone needs a rav. And I tell you what, I'm no longer rendering halakhic rulings unless I know you and your situation. So you just can't come out of the blue with me and ask me, oh, is it okay if I carry a gun or I carry mon- money on Shabbos? No, I have to know you and your situation. In Megad um, Givot Olam on uh, page 101, he records, this is Rabbi Shurkin, or Michal Shurkin, also a student of the Rav, uh, uh, that Rav, the, the, the Vilna Gon held that you, about a certain Sadiq, I guess maybe more than one, you could violate Shabbos to get a bracha from him. And uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein himself in the Igros Moshe, volume 8, Orachayim, number... Okay, so... 99.9% of Orthodox rabbis would say you cannot answer the phone on Shabbat unless it's Kuach Nefesh, a matter of life and death. But Emmanuel Rachman was about about the most left-wing modern Orthodox uh, rabbi, major thinker uh, in America, real intellectual, uh, lived until maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago. He seemed to be headed to become the the president of Yeshiva University in New York, uh, quite a, quite an innovative thinker, and so he held that you can can answer the phone on Shabbat. But wow, that's that's pretty radical. Number um, uh, sixteen says 
that you can write a Kamea on Shabbos if, um, if it will, you're worried that without it, the person will die. In other words, if the person uh, feels that he needs, he needs this Kamea, you can do it. And the last thing I'll mention, Rav Nachum Rabinovich, in his Tshuva Tziach Nachum, he goes even further. He says that social workers are allowed to travel on Shabbos if there's a terrorist attack, if they could, uh, because the trauma is such, it's the equivalent of a chola sheyeshbo sakana. And Brandon says, wouldn't it be easier to just cast off, cast off the head cage dogma and life? Well, it'd be probably easier and a better choice for some people. Other people do better living in community, living with structure, living with hierarchy, living with connection to other people, living in a community where people stay together over many generations, where you can go to synagogue and there are three generations, four generations from the same family there, praying together, dancing together, eating and drinking together, right? You can't develop community without laws, right? Human community depends on laws because the human being is naturally anarchic. And so you need to have laws to hold people together. And uh, Orthodox Judaism is a life of, of such intensity that has not matched any other experience that I've had. And he cites the, uh, the Rashba, that the Rashba says, uh, to say that you can also write a Kameya on Shabbos uh, for a Cholash Sakana or for a woman who just gave birth to uh, calm her. Um, and that was what I suggested, that that could possibly be a permission. Okay. Right, so the... The Jewish law that, that uh, of Pekuach Nefesh, meaning that you can basically do you know almost anything if it can save someone's life, with the exception of worshiping idols or committing certain forms of sexual immorality. Uh, but it's generally interpreted fairly liberally, so it doesn't have to be literally a case of, of life and death. So, for example, I take these beef organ capsules. And I'm pretty doggone sure that grass-fed beef organs from ancestral supplements are, are not kosher. But for me, as Pekuach Nefesh, such a dramatic difference in the quality of my life from before I started taking these. Right, I started taking these around, I think, June 12 of last year. So I've been taking these for almost a year. They completely changed my life within about two or three weeks. And I would not want to live without them because I suddenly got my vigor back. I got my strength back. I was able to exercise to a virtually unlimited degree. I feel great. I feel happy. You know, I'm just thriving. And that can fall under Pekuach Nefesh. So when some Orthodox Jews say, well, are they kosher? Are they kosher vergans, versions of, of these uh, beef organs? Why don't you just eat the real thing? Well, I've never eaten meat or fish in my life when a tiny little bit you know, may have fallen on my plate and I accidentally ingest it, my whole system revolts. And so I can just swallow these capsules. There's no aftertaste. I seem to get all the, the benefits of eating meat and I don't have to go through, you know, an onerous re-education process. And other people say, oh, I would do that. I would just go through the, the re-education process. I wouldn't care if I had to throw up 18 times. You know, I'd eventually love to eat love learn to love eating meat and fish and that's very easy to say that it's a different thing to do it and maybe you are brave in that area well i can assure you that there are 15 other areas where you're cowardly so there are always going to be some areas of life where you're brave and i'm cowardly and at the same time there'll be areas in life where i'm brave and you're cowardly 
So no one is brave in all circumstances and uh, no one is cowardly in all circumstances. I remember this guy. They called him the coward of the county. I mean, they just, they just made fun of him. I mean, everyone considered him the coward of the county. He'd never stood one single time to prove the county wrong. His mama named him Tommy, but folks just called him yellow. Something always told me they were reading Tommy wrong. Because, yeah, in many situations, Tommy did appear cowardly. Look, he was only 10 years old when his daddy died in prison. And I looked after Tommy because he was my brother's son. I still recall the final words my brother said to Tommy. Son, my life is over, but yours has just begun. So promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. Now, it won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. Hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man. You don't have to directly ingest meat and fish and, and alcohol to be a man. You can just take grass-fed beef organs from ancestral supplements, even if they don't have a hexer on them, a, a kosher certification. Look, there's someone for everyone, and Tommy's love was Becky. In her arms, he didn't have to prove that he was a man. One day while he was working, the Gatlin boys came calling. They took turns at Becky, and there was three of them. Tommy opened up the door and saw Becky crying. The torn dress, the shattered look, was more than he could stand. He reached above the fireplace and took down his daddy's picture. As his tears fell on his daddy's face, he heard these words again. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. Now, it won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. Hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to, be a f you don't have to fight to be a man or eat meat or fish. Now, those Gatlin boys just laughed at him when he walked into the bar room. One of them got up and met him halfway across the floor. When Tony, Tommy turned around, they said, Hey, look, old Yellow's leaving. You could have heard a pin drop when Tommy stopped and locked the door. 20 years of crawling, 20, 40, 54 years as a vegetarian was bottled up inside him. He wasn't holding nothing back. He let him have it all. When Tommy left the bar room, not a Gatlin boy was standing. He said, this one's for Becky, as he watched the last one fall. And everyone considered him the coward of the county. So now I have no other things in my pile until everyone else uh, sends me more stuff. So let's pick up. Got my story in here. Uh, we were in the middle, if you remember, about, uh, we we're talking about Israel Jacobson and uh, David Friedlander, reformers. The last thing I was talking about was Israel Jacobson uh, in uh, Zizin, his synagogue there. And he says as follows, why create a reform service? He says, quote, who would dare deny that our service is sickly? because of many useless things. That is, you're saying all this stuff in the prayers that are, are useless. And Brandon says, being exposed to the wrath of the group for nonconformity is a huge deterrent to getting involved. That reminds me of all the guys who say, oh, I never want to get involved with a woman because it hurts so much when they break up with you. Right? Love. Love means being vulnerable. Right? L love comes with, with, with some downsides. Right? Some... Some say, love, it is a river that drowns the tender reed. Some say, love, it is a razor that leaves your soul to bleed. Some say, living in community, it is a hunger, an endless aching need. I say, love and community, it is a flower, and you, it's only seed. Living in community, 
It's the heart afraid of breaking that never learns to dance. It's the dream afraid of waking that never takes the chance. It's the one who won't be taken, who cannot seem to give, and the soul afraid of dying that never learns to live. When the night has been too lonely and the road has been too long, and you think that love and life in community is only for the lucky and the strong, just remember in the winter, far beneath the bitter snows, lies the seed that with the sun's love in the spring becomes the rose. Just remember that. Gone on Shabbos. When I was in Israel, we went, uh, the things we did in the 80s, we went to Kiryat Arba for Shabbos and we ate. Oh the- man, things we did in the 80s. Gosh, everything, everything I enjoyed doing in the 80s is now illegal. In, uh, in, um, in Hebron, actual Hebron. And uh, uh, I remember I was one of the, because we had taken um, uh, like a. Why hasn't Mark Shapiro ever flown to a distant country to beat up another live streamer? Well, you know what they say, they, 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 they call him the coward of the county. But you could have heard a pin drop when he turned and locked the door, bro. We were in the army for a week. So that gave us the, the, uh, the license, I guess, to carry a gun. We could do guard duty. So uh, we could carry a gun if they gave it to us. Um, carried a gun in Hebron, bro. Augustus says, there are most accepted at Kew Garden Hills, Erev. Uh, well, Kew Garden Hills is not the... It has to be Rashid Sarabin. Rabbi Jachter, uh, Ramosha held 600,000. If Mark Shapiro is so great, how come he's never been on the Ralph retort? And, and um, for Ramosha, even in a car, it's, it's still 600,000. Uh, that's enough to make it. Uh, New York is definitely Rashid Sarabin. Uh, if you, more details, you can find uh, in, uh, Rav Moshe, in, in Rabbi Jachter's work. Uh, also, Brooklyn was a big issue. Uh, Rav Moshe was opposed to the Flatbush Erev. Nissen says that one third of Romania is the former Hungarian province of Transylvania. However, real Romanian Jews are from a different culture. My grandmother was from Romania, I believe Bucharest. Um, but uh, uh, you have some parts of Romania that are in Transylvania. Now we're in the Ukraine. Uh, Munkac, for instance, is in the Ukraine right now. And Satmar went back and forth uh, as well. Uh, MH says, as one Muslim told me, Allah is stronger than your Hashem, so he needs no day of rest. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, the Muslims don't have a day of rest. Um, Jacobson. It's a question, since you raised that, uh, why do we um, rest on Shabbos? Of course, there's two reasons. In the second Ten Commandments, it's in memory of, uh, in commemoration, remembrance of, uh, of the Exodus. But the first one is, uh, at least a simple reading, you read it, uh, it's uh, imitatio Dei, God rested, so we rest. But that's not how this radiation understands it. He doesn't, uh, it's not that we're resting, not in commemoration of God resting, but in commemoration of the, uh, the creation, which God did. So, and he cites the Moranavuchim to make that point. Uh, Okay, Mavor Mavorkim is uh, Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed. I don't know what he considers useless and what's not. Uh, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I think for him, maybe only Shema and uh, a reformed version of Shema Esri would be uh, valuable. I don't know. And then he goes on, this has degenerated into a... And that was what I suggested, that that could possibly be a permission. Okay, so now I have no other things in my pile until everyone else uh, sends me more stuff. So let's pick up. So this is part of a here. series on Torah motion, the rise of reform and the rabbinic response on the YouTube channel Torah in motion. Uh, we were in the middle, if you remember, about uh, we're talking about Israel Jacobson and uh, David Friedlander, reformers. The last thing I was talking about was Israel Jacobson uh, in uh, Zizan. Why don't these guys ever discuss Maimonides' rabid racism? Mark Shapiro's written about it, bro. I mean, have you even read Mark Shapiro? I mean, so many great books, Changing the Immutable, between modern orthodoxy and the yeshiva world. I could go on and on. His synagogue there 
And he says as follows, why create a reform service? He says, quote, who would dare deny that our service is sickly because of many useless things? That is, you're saying all this stuff in the prayers that are, are useless. I don't know what he considers. Okay, so if you've been to an Orthodox synagogue, you might well think, oh, there are just too many prayers. So on Rosh Hashanah, the whole service can take seven hours. A uh, typical Saturday morning tends to take about two and a half hours. Morning prayers during the week tend to take uh, close to an hour. Then there's Mintka, the afternoon prayer, which will take about 10, 15 minutes. And then Mari, which will take about another 10 minutes. So for the Orthodox Jew, just the time you spend in synagogue every day for the for the three major prayers, it can run about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. And it can be mind-numbing because you're saying the same words over and over again surely we can kind of boil these down and just get to like the spiritual essence of things useless and what's not uh, uh i'm not sure but so the way i've largely navigated it is i, I follow dennis prager's lead and uh i always try to have some judaica book with me some some art scroll version of a uh, talmudic tractate or some you know jewish related holy holy work that i can read instead of having to say the prayers. Uh, I think for him, maybe only Shema and uh, a reformed version of Shema Esrei would be uh, valuable. I don't know. And then he goes on. This has degenerated into a thoughtless recitation of prayers and formulae, that it kills devotion more than it encourages it. Okay, so he's talking about David Friedlander, his radical approach to Judaism. David Friedlander was a 19th century, I believe, German reform rabbi. And that it limits our religious principles to that fund of knowledge, which for centuries has remained in our treasure house without increase and without ennoblement. So he says it kills devotion. It's a thoughtless recitation of prayers and formulate. Now, this is something obviously the Orthodox struggle with as well. No one can deny that people, uh, you know, as I said, it's the routinization. So the Orthodox, they'll have to do their own way of trying to make it. The, we, we don't cut things out unless they're like matters that are not really essential to the davening. Uh, but uh, the thing with the reformers is they often had a good diagnosis of what was going on. Their, their solutions were, also, were the problems. But of course, there's a diagnosis that, uh, that the people find certain aspects of the service long and boring. And we've made changes when halakhali you could. I've said. So what do you do to get through hours and hours of uh, Orthodox Jewish davening? Like share your tips and tricks in the in the chat. Let us grow together. Like I, I've been checking my YouTube analytics. Seriously, we need to ha have have a talk about this, and and I just pray that we should all be zocher to work all twelve steps, but not the thirteenth step because it's so slippery, and work the twelve tools, and practice the principles of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in all of our affairs, not the adulterous affairs, but affairs is in our daily acts, so that we can achieve the promises. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity. We will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, right? These are the promises, but they only start to come true, generally speaking, on the other side of step nine, after you make amends. And here's what's, what's bothering me. According to my YouTube analytics, the average viewing of this show lasts about 10 minutes. So don't leave before the miracle happens. Right, you, you come on, you check in for, for 10 minutes on the show. 
you may very well leave this show untransformed. You may very well leave before the miracle happens. I mean, this show works if you work it and you're worth it, right? Keep coming back. Don't leave before the miracle happens, right? If you stick around, you'll suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I did numerous times. Just look at the tissue above that you have today and compare that to when we were growing up, where I'd sit in show for as a youngster, hours and hours listening to keynotes. What's a guy, what's a 12 or 13 year old supposed to do when you can't understand these keynotes? And it just. Uh, keynotes are mournful prayers about Jewish suffering. Read them again and again. Uh, so now we've made changes. So, but that's, uh, you know, there's halakha principles as well. But uh, the reformers are not so concerned about that. Uh, and then he says, uh, that these prayers have remained in our treasure houses without increase or ennoblement. That is, we have to change the prayers because uh, we can't recite prayers the same way they've been recited for a thousand years, two thousand years. Uh, we need some changes. Now, I just want to take back a bit what I said that in terms of, uh, you know, make it seem it's only the reformers because there's a video of an interview. There's a guy who deals with high school kids. I can find it. I forget his name. And he interviews Rafael Schechter. And he says that at a lot of our high schools, the kids come in and they don't want to dive in. You know, they don't come from such religious homes. God forbid, God forbid kids show up and they don't want to pray. I just can't understand that. How did Judaism fracture into so many subgroups? Well, Sephardic Judaism did not. So Sephardic Judaism does not have reform and conservative and uh, reconstructionist varieties. There's only one traditional Orthodox version of Sephardic Judaism. The three major fracturings of Judaism into Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox happened in Germany. So it was probably influenced by the fracturing of Protestantism. Like, how come Protestantism is so fractured? So something that Judaism has in common with Protestantism is that they both work on a congregational model. So there may be no direct overseer of an Orthodox synagogue. There's no hierarchy in Judaism. There's no Jewish pope. Right? There's not a board of directors for all of Judaism. So I grew up in Seventh-day Adventism, which is hierarchical, right? In, in Seventh-day Adventism, there's a general conference president. And when my father, Desmond Ford, was making waves in Australia, the, the church hierarchy gathered together and said, let's drop him into a bigger pond. Maybe he'll not create as much trouble in a bigger pond. So my family got shifted to Pacific Union College in the Napa Valley, but my father kept making Machlokat controversy. And so the general conference president, Neil Wilson, was a very canny political player, and his son is now the head of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now he's the general conference president. So it's a hierarchical movement. There's a president who's you know the, the dominant figure in the church, and then there's there's a board. And so it works from, from the top down. The Catholics also have a hierarchy. There, there's a pope, right? There's a hierarchy to how you do things. But for Protestantism and for Judaism, there's no pope. There's no hierarchy. Like one shul, one rabbi can't necessarily effectively boss around some other shul and some other rabbi. So both synagogues and Protestant churches work on a congregational basis. So the, the congregation is king, Right. And they may affiliate with other institutions and other movements, and they may gather into groups, but they can disaffiliate as soon as that affiliation stops serving them. So often you'll have synagogues that may affiliate with Reform, Conservative, or some variety of Orthodox Judaism, and then they stop affiliating when that affiliation no longer serves them. So essentially, 
synagogues operate in two primary ways. They're rabbi-led synagogues, where you've got one rabbi who pretty much decides how things work, and then other synagogues where you have a board that meets and employs the rabbi and uh, tells the rabbi what to do. So that, those are the two organizational structures for how synagogues work. Uh, synagogue presidents have virtually no power. Right? So you may hear that you know Barry Cohen is uh, president of his synagogue. Uh, that's just someone who's, generally speaking, doing a lot of onerous tasks but without any power. The teenagers, teenagers, you know, they're, they're not so into it often. So Rav Schachter says to him, so then they don't have to dive in all this. And I don't know if the person was a little surprised. He says, so what should they do? So Shachter says, he says, okay, he says, cut out this because of the Pesuk of Zimmer. I think he says, do Brashamar and then go to Ashray. And then I think he says, then go to Berkos Kriyachra. In other words, he cuts out. So it's like a 15 minute or even less, a 10 minute davening. And this is not some reformer. This is what Shachter saying. For these kids, it's better to say a few things with Kavana than to have them sit there the whole So Kavana means intention. So to say things with intention rather than saying a lot of things just out of habit. And Herschel Shachter is the most influential. Osek, that means modern orthodox decider in of Jewish law in North America. All time, so they're born out of their minds. So by the time they get to the Shema, they're still thinking of uh, the sports game from the night before that they've been thinking for the last 10 minutes. So, so this is, you know, the Posek of Schachter saying that... And uh, Brandon says some groups want some dogma, but not others. Well, orthodox Judaism's got virtually nothing to do with dogma. Jews couldn't care less about theology. So there's virtually no dogma in, in the way that uh, Judaism operates. So you'll have to think of some other put down. I'm sure you'll be able to come up with one very quickly. So, right, people just have an instinctive, you know, hatred or veneration of religion and their responses don't tend to be terribly thoughtful. Uh, you know, for those people, we're not talking about a show here. A show's problematic. But for the and they have masses of useful idiots to enforce policy on their peers. So I'm just curious, how would the quality of life of these useful idiots, say, in Orthodox Judaism compared to your own? So most people in Orthodox Judaism are married with kids with way above average incomes, uh, frequently well-educated. So these useful idiots from, from most outside perspectives are living far better lives than the average member of almost any other group you can name. Right? Modern Orthodox Jews in particular, we're talking about a group with probably an average IQ in the 120 to 125 range. So when I go to a modern Orthodox synagogue, I am of average intelligence. When I go to any other synagogue, I am of above average intelligence. But modern Orthodox, we're talking about a group with an average IQ 120 to 125 to, to operate a family in modern Orthodox life. Probably requires a minimum income in Los Angeles of $120,000 a year. Not a lot of schleppers, not a lot of losers in, in this crowd, though, though for you, they're just masses of useful idiots, even though probably you know 98% of them have, have a quality of life that uh, you could only, you could only like look at and be amazed. High school kids in uh... You could have, I guess, different minyan. You could have the minyan for the kids who want to do everything and the kids who aren't up to it. And uh, I was, uh, I found that interesting that uh, Rav Schechter said that. Uh, now, uh, you might be thinking that, um, well, we've added a great deal to Judaism in recent And Brandon says mythology helps people get through the day, big lie at work. Yeah, guess what? Atheists go through the day 
believing all sorts of nonsensical things too. Let atheists believe that their life matters. Atheists tend to operate with a very strong belief in objective good and evil. Like even atheists have instinctive moral reactions. This is good. This is wrong. Uh, atheists think that they're the center of the earth. Right? There are all sorts of non-rational and irrational beliefs that people employ to get through the day. Uh, the religious subset of that is just you know, a part, right? Atheists are not exactly known for their rigorous rationalism in all areas of life. There are all sorts of non-rational, even nonsensical, plainly false beliefs that uh, aid people in getting through the day. Years, But from Jacobson's point, nothing is new. Everything just comes out of the same old sources. And since we're living in a different era, as we'll see, we need entirely new conceptions. And if, you know, if we're bound to Jewish law, then there's going to be limits to what we can do. So people like Jacobson aren't going to be happy. Now, Jacobson also was concerned with fitting in. Remember, at the synagogue... Uh... So he's talking about Rabbi Israel Jacobson, a reform rabbi in Berlin around uh, the middle of the 19th century. Uh, the first, the inauguration was full of non-Jews, and they too joined into the, uh, the singing and everything. Uh, I can tell you that at the so generally speaking, you don't find many non-Jews at an Orthodox synagogue, and they're relatively rare at a conservative synagogue, but you'll find a few more of them at a Reform synagogue. The inauguration of uh, the show that I go to, there were also non-Jews at the inauguration. The mayor was there, the assembly people, and uh, they didn't speak, but they sat, uh, actually I shouldn't say that, the mayor spoke, I should say, but the rest of them just sat there. I remember the mayor spoke, he, he spoke very ecumenically about all our houses of worship and everything, and very nice. Um, but How long was I Reform? Well... I became interested in Judaism at UCLA, but I didn't seriously think about converting until I'd gone back to Australia for a few months. I was living with my atheist brother. It was December of 1989, and I decided I wanted to convert to Judaism. And my, my hero was Dennis Prager, who doesn't affiliate with any one Jewish denomination. So Dennis has, has a foot in all the major Jewish denominations from Reform to Conservative to Orthodox to Hasidic to and uh, so I thought, you know, Dennis Prager, he's a good role model. I, I want to imitate that. But life doesn't usually work out that way. So just so happened when I went back to America, I was living in Newcastle, California, and the closest synagogue was about 30 minutes drive away was Reform. And basically the only Jews who I could get to talk to me for a couple of years were Reform Jews. So my early interactions were primarily with Reform Jews. Then I moved to Orlando, Florida, next to a right-wing conservative synagogue. Uh, I met some Reformed Jews, went to some Reformed temples when I was in Orlando, Florida. It's only when I moved to Los Angeles in, in 1994 that I got to experience Orthodox Judaism. And for about my first six months, first six years in Los Angeles, kind of equally divided my time between Orthodox and non-Orthodox synagogues. So I first started... Uh, checking out uh, Reform Jews, talking to them in probably about 1991, 92. And then by 1994, I was experiencing Orthodox Judaism and found it intoxicating. And after year 2000, virtually all my my Jewish life has been spent in orthodoxy. But we didn't have psalms or hymns that we sang together with them. But Jacobson says as follows. He says that parts of the Jewish prayer service and the rituals are offensive to reason. That is, they offend us. So we say things that we don't accept, we don't believe in. And then he says as well, also to our Christian friends. So this is going to be driving reform also, that uh, they need to fit in, not just in their understanding of what it means to be a modern person, but they don't want to do things that non-Jews will look at and say, well, uh, that's uh, retrograde or that's backwards uh, later. 
in his speech at the inauguration and speaking to the Christians, he says, quote, there is nothing in this, this, this new temple that in any way contradicts the principles of pure religion, of the demands of general morality, of reason, of your humanitarian attitude. Of course, we today in 2022, we would never say to the non-Jews, if we, you know, dedication of our shul, there's nothing that we do in here that's in opposition to your humanitarianism. And we wouldn't feel the need to say that everything we do in here is in accord with uh, pure religion, with general morality. Right, because the more secure an in-group is, the less it cares about outside opinion, the more insecure and vulnerable an individual or an in-group is, the more they have to care about outside opinion. But generally speaking, it's a really healthy thing to consider how outsiders to your life think about what you're saying and doing, how outgroups think about what you're saying and doing. So it shouldn't necessarily exercise a veto of everything you say and do, but it should be regularly in your consciousness. What should both participate in the dance and also spend a little time stepping outside of the dance to think how would outsiders view what we're saying and doing here. We assume that everyone knows that synagogues were interested in morality, but you see that in the early part of the 19th century, he needs to stress that we're not... Why did I shave my, my orthodox beard? I needed mother money, and I, I was getting some from my stepmother and uh, a condition of, of the, the money. I, I think I sold it for like, not just 300 bucks, but for approximately $10,000 that she let me to complete my Alexander Technique teacher training. So my family was concerned if I had a big long beard, it would put off people wanting to get Alexander Technique lessons from me. So I sold out in, in December of 2011. And when I took it off, because I had let it grow for, for three years, man, my, my head felt so much lighter. I couldn't believe, you know, how much that beard was weighing me down. Not different than you. We too are moral and we're not this synagogue, unlike those other synagogues, as a synagogue where uh, a Christian can come and feel brotherhood with the Jews because we all uh, are, are worshiping the one true God. You won't find in this synagogue any of that orthodox mumbo jumbo and superstition. I do want to add, however, that many people are probably thinking when you hear this, that's so reformed, be concerned with the volume. Always what the Goyim have to say, and we're going to modify our service, Bye. and we're going to change our practices because of the Goyim. And I have to say that uh, there is a lot of truth to that feeling, but it's not complete without pointing out that we have plenty of examples where Orthodox or Torah leaders, because I don't want to use the word Orthodox, I'm speaking about, let's say, in medieval times, they're not Orthodox. There's no such thing as Orthodoxy yet. We haven't even got to Orthodoxy. Maybe with the Chassam Sofer, we'll start seeing Orthodoxy, right? We just have Torah Judaism and Reform Judaism, um, traditional Torah Judaism and, and Reform Judaism. Because we have a number of examples, I'll just give you some of them now, where post-king Torah leaders have said that because of how things look to the Goyim, we should not do it. And uh, let me give you a few examples. Uh, I should have asked Rabbi Desaini about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, the chief rabbi of Rome. Um, in Rome, uh, before the mid-19th century, one of the practices they used to do was they would drag the coffin of uh, rabbis, only rabbis, uh, they would drag the coffin and this was thought to be a form of penitence. This is based on the idea that uh, Chizkiyahu, uh, to give penance to his wicked father, dragged his father's bones. So they would drag uh, the coffin. And uh, this is something this created problems because the non-Jews would look at this. This is, uh, oh, they made, and then they dump it into the, they didn't let it down nicely into the grave. They'd actually push it in. And this was like skila. This was like a... So orthodox means correct belief. And so the term orthodox being applied to traditional Jews was a put-down initially used by non-Orthodox Jews who wanted to say that these guys were just overly concerned with, with correct beliefs. So it was initially used as a put-down, later embraced by traditional Jews. Now, functionally, practically, 
what determines whether or not you're orthodox is not what you believe, but whether or not you abide by, publicly by the Shulchan Aruch, which is a 15th century compendium of Jewish law. And uh, one little tidbit about the Shulchan Aruch, it doesn't mention Lashon Hara. That's the, the sin of gossip. So Lashon Hara, the great sin of gossip, was never really much of a sin, never got much attention in the sacred writings of the Jewish tradition until the Hafez Chaim came around in the 19th century and he turned all this agarita, meaning stories in the Jewish tradition, he turned all these stories into halacha law. He took stories and translated the stories into law and got a book out of it called the Hafez Chaim, meaning he who desires life, let him guard his tongue. So Hafez Chaim refers to guard your tongue. The uh, the punishment of uh, stoning, like you throw someone off a, a high roof or something. And in fact, the tzaddikim in Rome would do all four all four types of um, punishments uh, after their death. There was a whole uh, formula they did as a form of penitence. Now this created uh, negative feelings among the non-Jewish Romans. Can you imagine? They'd see the people dragging uh, the coffin uh, through the streets. The good thing is, however, was that this was only done for the sages, and he only did it every like 40, 50 years once. So it wasn't such a, a big deal. Uh, uh, so when when I pass, I'd rather you didn't drag my my coffin through the streets and you know let it bump around on the stones. Like, please be more respectful. But uh, nevertheless, it was mocked during the carnival performances in Rome, and uh, uh, in fact, for over two hundred years, the Jews of Rome asked the various popes to um, forbid the performances where they used to mock the Jewish funeral practices. And it was, it was finally abolished by the Jews in the 19th century because they had a rabbi there. He was the Rav of Rome. He wasn't from Rome. He was from Eretz Yisrael. He came to Rome. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan. And uh, he wrote a volume of Chuvot, a very interesting volume called the Krach Shal Romi. Rabbi uh, Professor Jose Faur has a whole book on uh, Yisrael Moshe Chazan, a very fascinating figure. Well, if you look in his responsa number uh, 13, he talks about how, contrary to what the general minhag was, a simple person, uh, Chazan calls him Pashud Echad, a simple person, said he also wanted to be given the, uh, the Dalad Misos based in. He also wanted to be given the four mitot and uh, to be dragged. You know, I have to look in the tshuva. I, 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 as I remember, you drag in the coffin. You're not dragged by yourself. <laughs> I'm going to look, though, because I'm thinking of it. That would be even worse if you actually dragged the body. But I, uh, I'm pretty certain that uh, that's my recollection, uh, that it's they drag the coffin, not the, not the body. Because uh, um, they do bury coffins in Rome. Uh, um, now this is again going to be a problem. You're going to drag him and drag him into through the, through the cemetery, which goes to the non-Jewish neighborhoods. And uh, Rabbi Shlomo Chazan says, when we did it with the big rabbis, it was a very uncommon thing. But now, well, you have simple people who want to do this, and that's going to create a mockery for Judaism. We now have good relations with the Christians. Can you imagine what that's going to do when they see us dragging, uh, you know, dead people through the streets? It's going to make us, he says, seem like barbarians in their eyes, and therefore he abolishes it. Is this a valid concern? Are we supposed to alter our practices because of the non-Jews? Uh, we don't stop doing mitzvot because of the non-Jews, but there are other sources I found similarly. So for instance, the Rashbash. The Rashbash is Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, 15th century. 15th century uh, Algeria. He responds to a community where the minhag was, when you went into the shul, you took off your shoes. We know that's what they did in, means outside custom. the cities, for example, As in the villages, they did that. Did they get this from the Muslims, that this was a sign of respect? Um, it could be. I can tell you that right now in Jerba, 
And by the way, I'm going. I'm going back to Jerba the week immune session the week after Shavuos. It's a shit meeting. Uh, God willing, trip, uh, God willing, one day we'll go. But I got to plan it. I was going to announce to everyone one day that we're the first uh, kosher tour from America ever going to Jerba. But lo and behold, my my friend there, my contact told me I spoke to him last week. The group just left. A group of Hasidim, seventeen Hasidim, showed up in Tunisia last week, and uh, they're the first kosher tour. And in, <laughs> in their whole garb and everything, uh, the Hasidim there. Uh, so, uh, but uh, I can tell you that in every single show in Jerba, when you go up to the Aron Kodesh. And I, I had the cover of taking out the Torah one, but you have to take your shoes off. And in the famous show in Jerba, the Gariba, Gariba show, the, the, the big one there, everyone takes their shoes off before you go in the show. So you're all davening in the show. It doesn't matter. And when you come as- So I just read about Salvador Ramos, the shooter of that uh, elementary school in Texas. He used to cut his own face. He used a BB gun on random people. He's well known to cops. So yeah, I'd say that someone who goes around using a BB gun on random people. Right, that person's a threat to society. Okay, keep coming back. It works if you work it and you're worth it. Bye-bye.